And as we begin 2021, I thought it would be good to get back to some of the basics. So today, we start a series on the five solas. Now, some of you have no idea what the solas are, and that's totally cool. I'm looking very much forward to going through them with you. The solas are a a foundational set of principles that are central to the doctrine of, the, the belief that we hold about salvation. Sola in Latin means alone. Now, there are five solas. Sola gratia, I'm going to destroy the Latin, so you just have to forgive me for that. But uh, sola gratia, or gratia, which means grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. And sola dea gloria, to the glory of God alone. When Martin Luther sparked the Reformation, he he spoke of three solas, grace, faith, and scripture. Since then, Christ and the glory of God have been added, and and I think that they are great additions. When strung together, the solas form this statement. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. The alone aspect of each Sola is not to separate them from each other, but to separate them from the interference of man. These are areas that we like to doctor or try to, you know, contribute to or to change or participate in. But in acknowledging the solas, we are acknowledging that it is these elements alone and not any contribution from us that saves us. Today, we start this five-part series by looking at grace alone. Our text is Titus 3, verses 3 to 7. If you are able, if you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to read along with us. That's Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. If you do not have your Bible with you, that is cool. It's going to be on the words on the screen, so you are welcome to read along there. Grace alone, Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. We read the word of the Lord. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. This past week, I was scanning the internet for stories on grace. I was hoping to find a a good example, a good illustration of what grace looks like for the sinner. Sometimes, you know, I mean, I'm I'm human. I get hit by a serious case of, of writer's block when looking for illustrations. And often I turn to what can often be, sometimes be, the sharpest tool in my shed, Google. So I put in stories about grace into the the Google search bar and waited for the the, the options to populate. And as these stories populated, I got more and more discouraged. I read a few blog posts. I watched 
a few of the videos that came up, and I began to get a bit of a clearer picture as to how grace is understood by our culture in general, or at least by the most popular Google searches. The vast majority of the stories I came across were of people who had been through a hard time, experienced loss or depression, sickness, or another of the myriad of hard situations that are unfortunately a common part of life here on earth. Now, I, I struggle with this. Not because I don't think that people in these situations need or are given grace. Absolutely, they are. We are. I felt that firsthand two years ago when we lost Ava. I needed God's hand of grace there as I went through that struggle, as do all of us who suffer and struggle in life. My issue is that this is such a narrow application of grace. It's an application that we are comfortable with, partly because we think that the person deserved it, right? They were going through a hard time. They deserved some grace from God. And therein lies the rub. For grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. It's receiving favor or blessing even though we don't deserve it, especially because we don't deserve it. We can convince ourselves, we can talk ourselves into the position that a suffering person deserves it. Yes, comfort from the Lord is grace. We do not deserve it, and yet he gives it to us anyway. But comfort from the Lord is not the full scope of God's grace poured out on man. We cannot limit God's grace to people that we feel deserve it, because then we are redefining grace. But we're also making it such a, such a narrow door that some people may feel like they have not received grace, either because they have not yet hit a super hard time in life, or because they've experienced a hard time and have not received the comfort like they'd hoped to. No, we need a story, we need an example of grace that is, that is all-encompassing, that takes in the moral sufferer, but also the chronic sinner, the closet liar, the vicious gossip, the jealous neighbor, the thief, the glutton, the adulterer, and yes, even the murderer. And so I turned from Google and began my search somewhere else, somewhere more reliable and arguably somewhere I should have started in the first place. I looked in the Bible. As always, the Bible does not disappoint. From the Bible, I found the story of a man. Now, there are many stories of both men and women in the good book. But this particular story deals with a particularly evil and destructive man. He was a vicious murderer known by all, and while he had had his time in the sun doing the evil things his heart desired, he had been caught, and he had also had his time before the judges. He had been found guilty. Guilty of heinous acts against his fellow man. He had been found guilty of murder. And so he was spending his last days awaiting his execution in jail. The man's name is Barabbas. And the Bible tells us that he was a notorious, a well-known and monstrous prisoner. He was so monstrous that they put him in the same cell as the guys who had rebelled against Rome, the same guys who had committed insurrection against the government in hopes that he would pick fights with them and whittle down their numbers in prison before they received their justice from the courts. This was one bad dude. Do bad dudes get grace? 
I didn't see any stories about bad dudes getting grace in my Google search. I didn't hear a lot of that sentiment in society today either. In fact, our society is so wrapped up in cancel culture, a culture that says once you've crossed us, once you've crossed this line, right? Like you've crossed this line now, we're going to act like you don't exist. We're going to cancel you. We're going to make it so that your life is, is ruined, is canceled, is gone. We're so wrapped up in those ideas that grace has become a forgotten term and forgiveness has become an afterthought, which frankly is terrifying. For though we may not see ourselves as Barabbas, we are each notorious sinners, are we not? If everything that you thought, said, or did when you didn't think anyone else was looking or listening... If all those things are put on full display to the world around you, do you think that they would look at you the same? Would culture try to cancel you? If everyone knew your darkest secret and your deepest struggle, you too, like me, would be notorious. Known as the monstrous sinners that we are, for we are all monstrous Sinners, each and every one of us. Paul writes in the beginning of our text this morning, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy and hatred by others and hating one another. Who's Paul writing to in this passage? He's not pointing the finger and saying, All you Barabbases out there. He's not saying, all you well-known, famous, monstrous sinners out there. No, he says, we ourselves. And he's writing to Titus, a church leader, a a pastor. So Paul is not writing solely to the monstrous sinners outside the church. He's writing to the monstrous sinners inside the church. The ones in the pews, the ones online, and the ones standing at this pulpit. And so though we may not like to be compared to a murderer sitting in a jail cell, we are not so different from him as we may imagine or hope. His crimes were famous and his imprisonment was public knowledge. Our sins tend to be more private. Our imprisonment to our sin deeply personal. So as much as we despise Barabbas and those like him, at our cores we are the same. Sinners who have no hope of gaining the freedom that we need on our own. There was no amount of good behavior that was going to get Barabbas out of that cell. He had had his chance for action and he had blown it. Similarly, there is no amount of good behavior that will get us out of our prison of sin. We can't be good enough to make up for all the bad that we've done. It's like trying to clean up a mess with dirty rags. My sons spilled some milk on the floor at breakfast this past week. In their haste to clean up the milk, they grabbed the towel that was closest at hand, which happened to be a towel that was filthy from cleaning up some mud and dirt we had had on the floor earlier. And so all that happened was a dirty rag mixing with the milk and creating a bigger mess. That's what our attempts to earn our freedom from sin do. They just add to the mess. We cannot clean it 
For we do not have access to clean towels. All of our towels are stained with the filth of our sin. It's a hopeless situation. We sit rotting in the chains of our sin, much like Barabbas sat rotting in the chains of a Roman prison. So what happened with Barabbas? Barabbas was in prison at the same time that Jesus was put on trial before Pilate. Pilate could find no fault in Jesus. And in a last-ditch effort to save his life, Pilate played his last card. He played his, his trump card. It was a custom of the governors to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd at the Feast of Passover. And so Pilate asked them, Who do you want me to release to you? I've got Barabbas, the known thief and murderer, and then Jesus, who you call or who is called the Messiah. Who do you want? The guy that's going to come out and kill y'all? Or do you want the guy that's really nice and is healing people and feeding people? Like, which one would you prefer? And the crowd responds with chants of Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. We want the murderer. And what shall we do with Jesus, the one called the Messiah? Pilate asked the crowd. Crucify him was the answer. And that is what happened. Barabbas did nothing to earn his freedom from that jail cell. He was not released for good behavior. He was not found innocent of any of the charges brought against him. No, he was given freedom, not because he earned it, but because he received grace. Because he was given what he did not deserve or earn. And Jesus took upon himself, subjugated himself to what he also did not deserve or earn. A sinless man, no blame or shame or guilt could be laid at his feet, and yet he took all of the blame and shame and guilt of the world and carried them to the cross, and there he died. And so Barabbas had grace poured out on him twice that day. You see, Jesus died even for those that do not believe in him. He didn't say, I'm going to die for this section of people right here, and to hell with the rest of you. No, the Bible tells us that Jesus died for all people, and that includes those that do not believe in him. He died for all sin, including the sin of those that do not believe. Jesus paid the price for the sin of the world one time for all time, but we do not receive the benefit of those actions unless we believe. For we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. The fundamental principle of grace is getting what we do not deserve. The fundamental element of saving grace is Jesus Christ and resting in the faith that he gives us. For Paul continues in our passage this morning, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When Christ died on that cross, it was not just Barabbas' place he was taking. He took the place of every monstrous and notorious sinner that ever lived and ever would live. He took our place. And not, as Paul writes, because of our righteous and good works. 
He didn't take our place because we earned it. No, it was because he had mercy on us. For he did not give us what we deserve. No, and in doing so, he poured out his grace on us. He gave us what we absolutely did not deserve. And so Paul wrote, we have been justified by his grace. We have been made right before God by Jesus Christ on the cross. Those who believe, those who rest in Christ have been washed with the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, which has been poured out on us richly because of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And it is in this that we have hope. It is in this that we have become heirs with Christ. It is through this gift of grace that we have the hope of eternal life. The reason that we emphasize grace alone is because it is so important for us to realize and to remember that it is not our works that save us. It is so important for us to acknowledge that we did not earn or merit in any way Christ's death on our behalf. We can never be good enough to earn it. It is grace alone. It is not Christ's work alongside all of the good things that we've done in life. It's not Christ's work augmented by our good intentions. We do not get to participate. It is grace alone. It is strictly God's unmerited favor poured out on you. And there is not one of us, not one of us sitting in the pews, listening online, or standing at this pulpit that does not need God's grace. How thankful I am. For the grace of God. How thankful I am for a God that loves us in spite of our continued failings. Who forgives us when we ask it. Who comforts us in times of trouble and hurting. I'm so thankful for a God who will never leave us and never forsake us. How thankful I am that he does not withhold his favor from us until we have earned it. How thankful I am that I can rest in the grace of God alone. I do not know where you are in your walk with the Lord, but know that he died for your sin. Whether you believe that or not does not affect the actions that he took on your behalf, but whether you believe that or not does affect the benefit that you receive from them. Trust in the Lord. Believe in his work on your behalf. Believe in the grace that was poured out on you. Believe that you could not earn God's favor, but that because of his great mercy and his great love, he has lavished you with his grace. Let us rest in the finished work of Christ that was done for us through grace alone.